This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is Resurrection Truth and Hope. We're going to be taking a look at the evidence for the resurrection and the significance of those historic events. I have two guests today. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at DTS. Welcome, Daryl. My pleasure. Good to have you on the show once again. Glad to be here. I occasionally do show up. So it's <laughs> <laughs> and our second guest today is Dr. Gary Habermas, coming all the way from Virginia via Skype. Gary is the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University. Thanks for being on the show today, Gary. I enjoy it, guys. I always enjoy being with you. Well, I want to start out by getting a little bit of background on how you got interested in this topic. So, Gary, would you tell us a little bit about how you even became interested in studying the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I, I, you know, I do a fair amount of interviews, and people, some, sometimes I do the topic of doubt. And when that comes up, people assume that I got into it to help doubters. And I tell them, I wished I could be all that, you know, that altruistic, but I wasn't. Um, I was going through a long period of doubt myself, a, a long and very serious period of doubt. In fact, after I already had my PhD, I say that because I don't want somebody to think I'm talking about teenage years or something, but after I already had my PhD, my, uh, my mother called me to see how I was doing with some of my questions, and I told her that I thought I was probably fairly close to becoming a Buddhist, hmm. believe it or not. So, uh, that just a little hint. I didn't like that option, but I felt I was drawn inexorably to that. Again, I, I didn't want to go there, but I thought I was going there. That just because, because of my study and research. So, when I started going through these doubts earlier, earlier before I finished my PhD, when they started, a lot of friends came alongside me, for which I'm grateful. Christian friends, and said, well, hey, study this evidence, look at this evidence, look at this evidence, why don't you try creation, why don't you try archaeology, what about New Testament reliability, what about, what about, what about? And I was very, very skeptical in those days, and I checked out all the above, and I thought, yeah, some of them are interesting, some of them are not so interesting, but none of them are going to answer my questions in detail. And so one day, I wasn't very familiar with the topic in those days, but one day I was reading and I thought, wow, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, not just the event itself, but what it means for us mm -hmm. in terms of worldview issues in, this, in the truth of Christianity, this could be the deal breaker. This could be the one that really straightens me out of my doubts, and the rest is history. From that mm -hmm. time on, I've never given up my primary study 
of the resurrection of Jesus. But it was it was selfishly in the sense that I was trying to answer my own questions. Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, Daryl, something we've never asked you, I think, on the show is how did you ever get interested in, in studying the historical Jesus? Well, um, I was interested in the Gospels. Uh, I figured the Gospels were a pretty important part of the New Testament. Imagine mm-hmm. that. And uh, I was living in a tradition in which the epistles were the major uh, topic of exposition, mm-hmm. and, and um, the gospel seemed to perplex people. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if this is perplexing to people, then I'm interested in figuring out what's really going on. And mm-hmm. so I started a pursuit of particularly the synoptic gospels, because John was pretty straightforward in many ways, and the gospels, synoptic gospels were a little more complex. Mm-hmm. And then um, I ended up doing doctoral work in Luke, and I've been basically there ever since. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it's interesting how a lot of people have these questions. Um, many times we, we have friends who ask us questions, and then if we don't know the answer or there's, we have our own doubts, we try to get answers for ourselves so that we can then also not only be more confident in our own faith, but share those answers with others. Now, Gary, you were investigating miracles, and how, does, how did you approach the historical study of uh, a claim of a miraculous event? Is that any different than regular, uh, non-miraculous kind of historical investigation, or how did you approach that? Well, that, that's, that's interesting. Uh, Mike Lacona, who you know, is a well-known New Testament fellow in his own regard, was a, was a student of mine. And then my current teaching assistant, who's a Ph.D. candidate, did his master's thesis and is now doing his dissertation on the resurrection. The three of us, the other guy's name is Ben Shaw. Ben, Mike, and I discussed this regularly. And generally, maybe, I, maybe I'm not addressing your question, but generally, um, we think an historian, qua historian, is a little bit handicapped and not having... I mean, having great tools for the event, but not necessarily the best tools, let's just say not the best tools, for philosophical and theological ramifications of miracle. Mm -hmm. So since a miracle, ever since David Hume, and actually way before David Hume, since a miracle is believed to be an act of God, and those who don't believe it still define it that way, usually, and just say there are no such things. when you start saying act of God, historians often don't have the tools to talk about, you know, they, they could be interested in it, but their discipline doesn't necessarily say that. And and I say that respectfully because my, my PhD actually is history and philosophy of religion. I studied history as much as I've studied philosophy, but I'm just taught more in my career in philosophy. Um, so I think the history portion we need the help of historians and others, New Testament mm-hmm. scholars among them. But for the, did Jesus do it? Sorry, did, did the Father do it? We're relying a lot on theologians and philosophers to answer that question. So mm-hmm. I, I see it as a multifaceted kind of interdisciplinary example. Yeah, I, I like to illustrate this, Gary, by saying, imagine you were alive when Jesus was being crucified. So you walk by the three crosses and you say, Jesus is being crucified, and, and he's in the middle there. And of course, people can look and see the three men hanging there and can determine that. Now the next statement I make is, Jesus is dying for your sins. 
Okay, now how in the world do I verify that statement? Right. And, and so, um, uh, I, and then I joke. I say, well, how, what does forgiveness of sins actually look like? I mean, do you see them fly away? I mean, what's the deal? And so, so it's a different kind, it's a different class of statement. And uh, in the work that we did in the key events in life historical Jesus, we made the point there are certain things that history is able to do mm-hmm. and history is able to frame, but to actually be able to demonstrate something, that's a whole different matter. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I would just extend that. I would say, yeah, the atonement an example, that's not written in the stars and it's not written in the f- events. But then after the resurrection, the death and resurrection, if we're going to say, well, you know, I can't think of any other options. If Jesus is raised from the dead, that means the Father raised him for a purpose. That's the best option. There's no, almost no way around that. That also involves other things like theology and philosophy. Yeah, so. I like I like to illustrate this through the uh, healing of the paralytic in Mark two, hmm. where um, where Jesus comes along and and he says, you know, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk. And of course, one thing you can see to actually perform that miracle is actually pretty difficult. The other you can't see. There's no way to prove whether in um, in saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, that it's actually happened. Mm-hmm. But right. by doing one, Jesus is using something that you can see to testify to the authenticity of what you can't see and to connect those two. And yeah. in a world uh, in a world and in a worldview that says, well, the only way this happens is if a transcendent acts on on to make it happen, you know, that becomes a persuasive event in in its totality. But you can't demonstrate in in the most specific terms one half of that claim. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, I mean you guys you guys all know this. But in that same passage, he's called the Son of Man. And once you go son of man, you could say, well, son of man is used as a man, a mere man sometimes, book of Psalms. Um, But wow, the kind of son of man he's talking about, the kind that forgives sin, Mm -hmm. you can't see that either. So forgiving sin and being the son of man, those are two huge things that look a little bit like there's a relationship to the miracle he's doing. So. Yeah, and in fact, Jesus is playing off that humanity in that passage because normally Son of Man would point to a human being, but we know from Jesus' use of the term and his and the background that he eventually ties it to, which is Daniel seven. This is a per, right. this is a human being who rides the clouds, and only right. only divinity rides the clouds in the Bible. So mm-hmm. so you get this unique mix of human and divine. That Jesus uses for the, his self-reference as a way of pointing out: Yes, God has given authority to the Son of Man to do this, but this isn't any human being. This is a special human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have, have you got? Do you guys know that in Daryl Bach's book on exaltation? <laughs> yeah. uh, he and a bunch of other guys, Tom Wright, uh, Craig Evans, a whole list of guys, also think that in that same passage, coming in the clouds. Mark 14, is also the little matter of sitting on the throne with God, which most of the commentators seem to think that's the biggie. When you claim to be sitting on God's throne, now you're really crossing the line. And it's, it's, no, it's no surprise that these people are proclaiming that this is blasphemy in Mark mm-hmm. 2. 
Yeah, because if he isn't who he claims to be, uh, then that's what it is. I mean, it's just the the Psalm one ten passage, "Sit at my right hand," combined with the Daniel seven passage, right, which is the riding the clouds and receiving judgment authority. Of course, judgment is something that that God executes. Uh, when we go to Acts two, we've got uh, we've got salvation happening in the in baptism, a religious rite happening in the name of Jesus. Well, if you were a good Jew, that would only happen in the name of the God of Israel. So there. There are substitutionary moves being made in terms of the kinds of functions that Jesus is performing that point to who he is. But we're getting a little ahead of our story there. Uh, it's good, the, it's good the, background. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. But, but the point here is, is that when you talk about what history is and is not able to do, it sets the table for some of these claims and can, can make the case that that this happened, and then it's the testimony that comes alongside of it that you kind of have to trust as a part of it, because point of the, part of the point of the resurrection is to vindicate mm-hmm. the character of the person who is being raised from the dead. Yeah. Exactly. Those three passages are three of my favorites, as you well know, Mark mm-hmm. 2, and then Mark 14, and then uh, Acts 2. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take a look at those a little bit more later on. Um, Yeah, I think at the base level we can say there's a distinction between the event that happened, say Jesus was raised from the dead, and I think you could be a naturalist even and say Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know why that happened. We can leave that up to, to future inquiry, but all the evidence shows that that happened. And so yeah, there was an empty tomb. They didn't find a body. I mean, they can you can go for all the bits and pieces that surround it and go, the best explanation is something very unusual has happened we need to think about. <laughs> so, Gary, when and they, you – And they do say that. Yeah, right. Uh, Gary, when you started your uh, investigation, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the argument that you used, the approach that you used, um, and what's called the minimal facts argument. Well, I actually started, you know, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this for a long time, but I'm having a chapter done on me in a book of Christian apologists. Uh, incredibly, from just a martyr to the present, I'm saying, what in the world am I in this book for? I seriously am. <laughs> but they pressed, they pulled some things out of me because they wanted to ask, they were asking, when did the minimal facts thing started? And I actually started doing it in my doctoral dissertation, which was in the Middle Ages. It was back in 1976. I did my uh, PhD. And, um, and but I, I distinctly remember, because of their questioning, because of their pushing, I remember a specific date in which I was in a pastorate be, a few years before my the uh, dissertation. And I remember where I was sitting and what I wrote, and I was writing out what is the beginning for what I call the minimal facts argument. And I went back and found the notes in my file, and it was marked 1972, Hmm. which precedes my dissertation by uh, the completion of it by four years. And uh, so I was actually, that was, that too, Mikkel, came from my doubts. Hmm. I was sitting there having doubts while I was pastoring. I mean, you know, I I believed in my teacher, my, my church never heard any of my doubt questions, but I was still having questions. And I thought to myself, how can I answer at, at that situation? Rudolf Boltmann's objections on the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I sat there and I thought, well, Boltmann gives me this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. If those facts are, he gives them to me because, more importantly, they're establishable. So I have two criteria here. These facts are establishable, and even skeptics like Boltmann grant them 
wow, I think on that criteria alone, I can get past this major objection. So again, it was for me and my doubts uh, at least four years before I wrote my dissertation. But in my dissertation, I actually started developing it a little bit. I argued that these facts are very well established. That's because it's because they're well established that the critics allow them. And that basis alone seemed to me to be a very strong basis. And on my committee, half my committee did not believe in the resurrection. And one of the members of my committee represented the history department, because again, I did history and philosophy of religion was my PhD. And he was a Jewish member of this of the history department. And he was the most complimentary person on my committee. And I thought that was just a real hmm. affirmation because I was doing this minimal facts thing, and he was an historian. So anyway, it just all started coming together. But that too actually came me working through my own doubts years before I did the dissertation. And so you are using facts that are, are strongly evidenced historically that even your Jewish scholars, even your, your skeptics, people who are not friendly to the Christian faith, would say, yeah, these are, these are historical. Right. He never, he never objected. None of, the, none of the six people on my committee, none of them objected or made me take anything out of my dissertation. Matter of fact, you guys might find this very incredible, but they never even made me add a sentence to hmm. my dissertation. They had me add a sentence to my precy, but I had already said that sentence in my dissertation twice. So they didn't ask me for anything new, which was just a gift of God. I had no idea how I went through it like that. But I, I think the minimal facts thing had something to do with it. If we're going to admit this data, then, you know, and, and don't forget at that time, I'm not arguing that God did it in all the ramifications mm -hmm. and the things we've been talking about, atonement, son of God, right hand of God, coming out of the clouds. I wasn't even arguing all that. I was just saying, what do you do with this event? And they let it fly. So, Actually, they, so, they, so the they, point you're making was the tomb was empty and, uh, and the claim of resurrection is the best way to explain what's going on? With the appearances, because remember, Daryl, back in those days, when I did in the dissertation and from 74 to 76, um, the empty tomb was a minority view. We're, mm -hmm. back in the, we're back in the world of Rudolf Boltmann here. Right. And if you said in class, if I were to speak up in one of my PhD classes and said, hey, I, uh, I accept the empty tomb. They would might they might smile they might be polite but they would know I was either an evangelical or a conservative Catholic because um, the minimal the the empty tomb was was minimally admitted in those days so it's come a long way today with about seventy five percent of critical scholars accepting it but when people think well seventy five is not that high you know they grant the appearances they not the appearances but the experiences that we, that we call appearances that's going to be in the nineties always has been for two hundred years since Schleiermacher and before that uh empty tombs not that high well depends on how you look at it if empty tomb starts out at twenty as it probably was moving up to seventy five is a huge jump yeah so in, in fact in New Testament studies we talk about there being two kinds of resurrection traditions, empty tomb traditions and appearance traditions, which is the experience, of course. Oh, and right. uh, and and I, I love the way scholars uh, finesse this uh, when they get down to the nitty-gritty. Um, I have quotes of scholars who talk about, well, 
the disciples believed something happened. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you know, they never deny the experience of something going on. That's they correct. might characterize it as all kinds of things. Um, so they, so they know it's that close. Uh, but the the hard part is again moving into that theological interpretation that says God did something and He did something very real. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. true. In fact, guys, you know, I'm I'm the guy that does the head count on everybody from 1975 to date, French, German, and English. Uh, I've got this huge document. By, by the way, that thing is at 1,400 pages right now, and all it is is where people are. It's not a critique. It's just a document of views. And I, if you said to me, let's stop right now, what, how many guys don't admit there's experiences from the original apostles? <laughs> I would stop and think, and I'm pretty familiar with my list still at all those pages. I'm not sure I could name a, a single well-known critic. And when you go down from Schleiermacher to the present, you're talking about guys like David Strauss, Rudolf Boltmann, um, and today, Barterman, Crossan, Borg, none of them would dispute that point. So it is solid, solid, solid. Now, empty tomb, you're going to fall back a little bit. But yeah, that's the one-two punch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Daryl, you've been working in historical Jesus, and people ask you um, sometimes very basic questions. But how would you, um, if you had a soundbite on TV and someone were to ask, what, were, uh, what are some of the top reasons for believing there was a real person named Jesus who was really crucified? What would you say? Well, the, the real person part is pretty easy. There's a lot of testimony, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's mm-hmm. a lot of testimony about, about Jesus, and some of it is non-Christian testimony. Um, granted, uh, the reports are, are later. Um, Josephus, who's writing at the end of the first century, uh, Suetonius and Tacitus writing in the early part of the second century. But the point is, there's a lot of explanation, and, and I actually don't think you can explain the life and career of Paul without a real historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. He ministered in the context. He was in Jerusalem. He knew about the controversy. He knew what the early church was preaching. At one point, he believed he believed that what Jesus claimed was false, but that means that they believed that Jesus what Jesus that Jesus existed. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a person still makes a false claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the other thing that I think is interesting is the Jewish tradition itself, mm. which you never get in the Jewish tradition the idea that Jesus is a myth, mm-hmm. that he's made up. What you get is a description of the unusual character of his ministry. Mm-hmm. And he's attributed to be either a sorcerer or a magician in the tradition. And again, sorcerers and traditions, you know, aren't myths. They yeah. are they are real people doing something that's mm-hmm. causing that characterization to exist. So if someone had asked me uh, on the one hand, you know, what about Jesus' existence, that would be it. And then on the crucifixion side um, and the death experience, uh, again, we're back to the testimony of Josephus, Suetonius, Tacitus, etc., mm-hmm. who are uh, utilizing um, in all likelihood various kinds of official records uh, if they don't know about it directly, and uh, and in that case are testifying to the fact that Jesus died. J- Jimmy Dunn used to say, it still says, that um, that the death of Jesus is one of the most well-attested events in history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, John Dominic Crossan says that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can yeah. ever be. That's, yeah. that's an amazing quote. Yeah. Um, Marcus Borg says almost an identical quote. Yeah. But 
yeah that that's that's amazing stuff by the way guys um for, again you guys know this but for the listeners bart ehrman has a list he goes 100 years from the crucifixion of jesus and says up to 100 years the sources are admissible and he lists 15 different sources independent sources for the crucifixion of jesus hmm. and four of the sources are outside the new testament within mm -hmm. 100 years so mm -hmm. uh that that's you know there's an atheist New Testament scholar yeah. making that concession. Yeah, I, I tell my students that if I'm in an organization, ordination exam with them, that I might ask them this question. Give me evidence for the existence of Jesus and for his death, but you cannot cite a Christian source to make the yeah. point. Mm -hmm. and, and and you can do it. Uh, and you can do it easily. Even yeah. though some people challenge the Docephus quote because uh, there are elements in it that have certainly have been added by a Christian later. Um, and there, uh, and and some people doubt one of the illusions among the Roman historians. Generally speaking, those three witnesses in particular are often cited as being uh, credible pointers to the fact that this testimony exists, and and people outside the Christian community are aware of it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like, well, you have to believe the Bible because it says so. Right. We have evidence outside the Bible, both from Christians and non-Christians. We have um, sources that that talk about Jesus directly, and and sources that talk about the impact that he had um, in the world as well. That's right. So those are Jewish sources that are challenging what Jesus claimed, but certainly said that he existed. And and what I like to say about about the Jewish tradition and the Josephus tradition, Josephus says he did unusual works. The Greek word is where we get our word paradox from. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and the sorcerer and magician tradition is notice what this is conceding. This is conceding that Jesus was doing unusual stuff. What's being mm -hmm. debated is the power that it came from. Yeah. So that's an important observation to be making because, and particularly for a person who says, well, Jesus didn't exist or that never happened, that's not, the, that's not what the layers of the tradition are telling you. He had a reputation for doing things that were hard to explain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gary, if you had a few minutes at you know, somebody's soccer game or a baseball game or something, and they asked you, hey, what is the evidence for Jesus' resurrection? How would you unpack those minimal facts in just uh, a few short minutes with someone? Do you want me to give a quick – do you want me to give the list of six, or do you want me to pass that? You can do four. I'm, <laughs> can we give I'm your surprised it's not seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, listen, over the years – I move between three and seven. Mm -hmm. And when someone say, why does the number change? I said, it's very, very simple. Nobody will only give me seven. A mm -hmm. Rudolf Boltman will give you 20, yeah. even though he says, even though Boltman says, all we know about Jesus, a first century itinerant Jewish, Jewish prophet who preached the kingdom of God died for it. Even though Boltman said that's all we know, if you actually read his theology of the New Testament and other things, he'll list about 20 of them. So the reason I move between three and seven is because nobody only gives me three mm -hmm. to seven. So I'll get a shorter list or longer list yeah. depending on who let's, I'm talking to. Let's do to. the top three. Pardon me? Let's do the top three. The top three? Yeah. The top, if I want to do three, now, I don't know if you're going to make me count the death of Jesus, because you have to start with that. Sure. It's not an evidence for the resurrection, but I start with that. If I, if I, if you conceded the death of Jesus, as per our previous comments here, I would go with the disciples had experiences that they believe were appearances of the risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. Number two, they were transformed. I don't say they died 
for this proclamation. I say they were willing to die for this proclamation, which everybody concedes. And thirdly, it was preached very, very early. And you say, how early? I've been working on this right now. I'm working on this magnum opus. I'm on page, I'm on 4,500 pages now, Daryl, on the one you said I wouldn't do. Um, (laughs) He challenged me, Michael, years ago. He told me I'd never do it. And he's one of the main reasons I'm doing it. Unless you got started. (laughs) Unless I got started, yeah. But I'm just doing a stretch on early right now, and virtually everybody now concedes, including Bart Ehrman, that there are a half dozen early creeds in the New Testament that can get us back to one to two years after the cross, and it names these these events. So I'd say I take those three. They had experiences which they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus, they were transformed and willing to die because of that event, not because of 20 other events, mm-hmm. because they were willing to die for the resurrection. And thirdly, that it was proclaimed immediately, take, take uh, in particular, Larry Hurtado, Richard Bauckham, Jimmy Dunn, this uh, uh, you know triumvirate of early Christology people, uh, they put it at one to two years after. Dunn says it could be the same year. Mm-hmm. Dunn said the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 could have come out the same year he was crucified. Mm-hmm. That is just unbelievable. We put those three together, I think the critics are in the corner. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, well, I, I think here the key figure is 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 Paul, because um, he has to be able to have understood the high Christology of the Christian message in order to process his vision experience. Mm-hmm. And what about the pre-Pauline? You know this, Daryl. I mean, they put in this two to three, one to two year slot. They think there are sources before Paul in the creeds that Paul did not believe. He probably knew about them, but they were before he came to Jesus. He knew about these early high creeds: Romans one three and four, Romans ten nine, First Corinthians fifteen three and following. Um, those are pre. Yeah, that's actually my point. Okay, mm-hmm. my point is he had to be able to process that vision. Right. right. And when and when he saw the risen Jesus, the light bulb that went off in his head is. What those guys were saying that I thought was wrong was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, and which, which which is very close to Mark too. Exactly right. Exactly mm-hmm. right. And so, so he has to. Uh, he, when I talk about this in public, you know, this is the this is where I end. I end with the story of Paul, and I say, we know that this incident on the Damascus Road happened within a few years of of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. 
We also know that Paul was aware of the debate in Jerusalem that was going on because he was in Jerusalem when Stephen was martyred. Uh, and, and so when he has this experience, he immediately processes what has taken place and who Jesus is, and the only way that can happen is if that Christology existed, which he had heard preached before he has that experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. And for those that is, uh, that is stunning. It's yeah. just stunning information. So for those who are listening, um, if you take a look in our archives, you'll be able to see an interview that we did with Sean McDowell on the fate of the apostles. And so, like Gary was saying, um, we say they're willing to die for their faith, but you can actually see some of the research that that Sean did, uh, Sean McDowell did on the fate of the apostles and the ones that he was able to find some good historical evidence for, uh, who did die for their faith. Well, let's transition a little bit now from the the historical evidence of the resurrection to the significance of of that event. I want to think about that from the perspective of early Christians and some of the earliest uh, apologetic arguments for Jesus as as Christ, as Lord, and I want to talk about uh, Peter's speech in Acts 2. So, Daryl, can you unpack for us what the earliest Christians were thinking when they when they um, began to see Jesus as Lord after the resurrection? Well, the question is, as a uh as a Jewish monotheist before the arrival of Jesus, if I can mm-hmm. say it that way, how did you view God? And God was seen as the unique deity. He was um, uniquely attributed uh, to possessing glory. Uh, he sat in heaven over whatever uh, spiritual beings existed as the unique authority. Um, and so honor and glory were exclusively to be given to him. That's the starting point. Mm-hmm. Now, there is within Judaism emerging during this time a tradition that contemplates whether or not anyone can share God's glory and presence. And there was a yes vote and a no vote, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the yes vote um, either attributed it metaphorically to a religious great like Moses. There's a book called The Exegoge of Ezekiel. I don't expect you to have had your devotions in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the Old Testament, what we call Old Testament pseudepigrapha, Second Temple Jewish writing from 200 B.C., actually, that um, in which Moses is invited to sit on the thrones of heaven. It's actually the language of Daniel 7, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, it's, he sees this in a dream. And he can't make sense of it, so he asks Jethro to interpret the dream. And, uh, and Jethro explains, this is like the power that you have in performing the plagues, basically. That's my summarization. Um, and most people read that text as a midrash on Exodus 7.1. Now, Exodus 7.1 is an interesting Hebrew text because it has God say to Moses, I will make you God to Pharaoh. Now, English translations often cheat. And they translated, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. But the actual Hebrew language is, I will make you God to Pharaoh. And the point is, when Moses speaks the judgment of the individual plagues, he is delivering the judgment of God. He is the vehicle through which, and that is being portrayed metaphorically in the Exegoge as Moses being allowed to sit on the throne with God and to share his judgment authority. So that's one example. A second example is the figure of the Son of Man in First Enoch. Okay, again, another text, Second Temple Jewish text. We sometimes uh, 
uh, put it in the collection that is called Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. Um, but this is a well-known Jewish text, uh, mostly about angels and spirits and judgment and the plan of God, etc. But this, the Son of Man figure sits with God in heaven. He's preexistent. He shares in the judgment. Um, uh, and so he's a very, very exalted figure. In fact, um, James Charlesworth and I edited a book in which we argued that First Enoch is probably written in the first century, late first century BC, early first century AD, and may even been written in Ghent in the Galilee area. Um, and so that even puts it, you know, in the very region Jesus ministered in. So those are yes votes. Then there are no votes, and the no votes say no. This doesn't happen, uh, and it says it in one way or another. Uh, the most colorful example is in Third Enoch, another Jewish text, in which Metatron gives um, is giving Enoch a tour of heaven. Mm-hmm. In the midst of it, he refers to himself as the lesser Yahweh. I call him the Whopper Junior, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 so uh, and. And God's not happy with that description, so he calls him in for a talk. Now, when I was a kid, my dad used to have talks with me, and I quickly learned this was not going to be a conversation. <laughs> that he was inviting me in because I had not upheld the honor of the family name in some way or another, and I needed to be corrected. And so, so this is one of those talks. Yahweh invites Metatron in for a talk and punishes him for having the nerve to equate himself even with Yahweh. So mm-hmm. that's a no vote. Mm-hmm. No one shares honor and glory with God. Another Another example is Rabbi Akiba, who believed that David uh, was the one who sat at the right hand of God in Psalm 110.1, to which the sages, that's the that's the um, group of official rabbis. Usually, when the sages are cited in Jewish materials, this is the final opinion. Um, the sages asked him, "How long will you profane the Shekinah? It's dishonoring to God to suggest that David could sit with God in heaven." That's another no vote. Mm-hmm. So there's this debate going on in Judaism about whether God's honor and glory can be shared. Mm-hmm. But the moment you acknowledge that that could happen. And you have Jesus doing stuff that God does, like forgive sins, Mm -hmm. like give salvation, like send the Spirit, Mm -hmm. which is the point of Acts 2. All of a sudden, you have made an an equation in function that begins to beg the question, so who is this mass marauder who's who's, uh, managed to come to earth and and do his thing? And of course, what they are claiming is is that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, unique Son of God, who is, to use the language of the Romans 1 creed, horizoned or marked out or demonstrated as Son of God in power by resurrection. Mm -hmm. It isn't that Mm -hmm. he took on something that he wasn't, but he's shown to be something that he is. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, then, you get this this emerging high Christology, which uh, is the direct result of the resurrection because the disciples understood that – that when God raised Jesus from the dead, his parking place was the right hand of God. <laughs> and I joke with people, if you want to contact Jesus, he's reachable at www.righthandofgod.com. We should buy that domain one day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I also love how he takes the messianic trajectories that are in the Psalms, like in Psalm 110, for example, and says all this stuff we'd been talking about with this idealized Davidic king that um, would we'd be in the eschaton now has actually come true. That what was metaphorical before is now like literal because Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, and that's why we have the Spirit. And even the, the geography of Jerusalem reflects this. I mm-hmm. mean, um, I. 
actually have a picture that I show in class of the of the map that's at the shrine of the book in Jerusalem of the first century Jerusalem. And I make the point, if you look, here's the temple, here's the Shekinah facing towards the Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. And to the right hand of the temple, right next to the right hand of the temple, the part of Jerusalem that sits next to the next to the temple at the right hand is the city of David. Hmm. And so even the geography of Jerusalem, of ancient Jerusalem, speaks to this truth that the king was intended to be the vice region of God on earth mm-hmm. and to represent his presence and his authority and that people were organized around the rule that he undertook. And then, of course, what the resurrection does is, as you say, it, it, it literalizes or, or takes that picture and says, now that's what this picture is really about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So we've been saying that the evidence for the resurrection that the resurrection is the best explanation for the historical facts that we have. And this is a great example of how Christians now were, were taking this fact and interpreting it based on expectation, based on uh, these different debates, um, to say that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now, Gary, you, t- you talked about 1 Corinthians uh, 15 as the center of Christian theology. And unpack what you mean by, by that. Well, how is that the center of Christian theology? Well. <clears throat> the first two verses before the creed comes, the first two verses, when I go into a university campus and I'm going to unpack this, people just think, oh, he's sticking with the text. They don't realize that right off the bat, I can give the gospel and challenge them to believe, because that's mm. what Paul does. Mm-hmm. And the first two verses, he says, when I came to you at Corinth, I preached the gospel to you. Now, okay, here's a footnote. I tell a crowd, I write with footnotes, so here's my <laughs> footnote. Whenever the gospel is unpacked, God's side of what we're supposed to commit ourselves to, what historical facts, what's true, um, these three are always present. The deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's a minimum. Deity, death, resurrection. And Paul's going to define that in just a moment. And so he says, I gave you the gospel, and what you do with it depends on where you are. If you believe it, you're in. If you're not, you're not on the path. And that's how he starts, first two verses. Then he gives the creed. Then he unpacks it through the rest of the chapter. And at the end, <clears throat> the very last verse, 1558, he's already been talking about application, mostly the believer's uh, resurrection. But in the last uh, verse, he says, be steadfast, don't give up, don't walk away, because this stuff is really true. Mm-hmm. Secondly, your labor in the Lord's not in vain. <laughs> Paul sees an argument from resurrection of Jesus, to our resurrection, to be steadfast, to what are you going to do about it? Your labor and Lord is not in vain. Oh, and here comes an opportunity to give. So mm. Paul sees the argument from resurrection straight through. But I think if I would make the point very briefly, I would say when people question in universities or class, and maybe they want to talk about the hot box questions, uh, sovereignty, free will, uh, maybe what about creation? Uh, Christian, you know, rooms, Christian classes are going to be a little bit different. But when they want to ask the questions that they want to ask, they'll be about everything else. But I tell them, look, table those questions until you're sure where you are on the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if that's true, and a person can make a commitment to that, again, that's that's verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. If we can make a commitment to that Jesus... That everything else is in its own time and place. I mean, don't let me, 
don't let me discourage you from researching creation and the end times mm -hmm. and sovereignty, free will, and the Trinity, and don't let me discourage you. But major on the major, which to start would be the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, which of course assumes his historicity. And if you're there, then as Paul says, verse two, you're on your you're on the path. I sometimes say you're on the road to uh, the Emerald City. You know, you're mm. in the yellow brick road mm. when you make this move. And so that's why I say it's a center because you've got the gospel in particular, and it's evidence, the most evidential passage in the New Testament on the early creedal passage, and then he branches out to other important topics like be steadfast, let's let's help others out, do you know you're going to be raised again someday? Mm -hmm. So he branches out from there to other things. So all told, yeah, I don't think First Corinthians 15 can be beaten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, 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 it branches out in two ways that I think are very important that are understated in most Easter contexts, mm -hmm. and that is um, – uh, the the real point of the resurrection is it is the vindication of Jesus by God. Mm -hmm. The resurrection is not something Jesus does. The resurrection is something God does for Jesus. And remember that the context is he's been put in an empty tomb because the Jewish leadership thought he was guilty of blasphemy and Rome thought he was guilty of sedition. And so, so there's this dispute going on in the public that says Jews say, or at least the Jewish leadership says, he's not who he claims to be. Mm -hmm. Rome says he doesn't belong, he doesn't deserve to have a kingdom. Okay, so the resurrection comes along and says, no, he's who he claims to be, and yes, he deserves to have a kingdom. Mm -hmm. So you know, when we generally hear an Easter message, it's he's risen, so one day we'll be risen. Well, yeah, that's true. I'm not underplaying that. But the flip side of it is the reason that can happen mm -hmm. is because Jesus is who he claimed to be. So that's mm -hmm. the first implication that I think comes out of that. The second implication is one I can't stress enough, which is it says Jesus died for our sins in that creed. Mm -hmm. But the next question you have to ask is, well, why is it important that he die for our sins? And then to do this, you've got to think Jewishly. Um, he dies for our sins in order to cleanse us or wash us to make us a clean vessel. And as a clean vessel, which means we're forgiven or we're justified, whatever term you want to use to describe the result, we are now, in, we are now put in the position of being able to receive the enablement that previously mm -hmm. we did not have. Mm -hmm. We get the Spirit of God that enables us to walk in the way that we were incapable of walking when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I like to say of Romans, read Romans not as, not as, a, as a letter, read it as a story. In the beginning, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. How much power does a dead person have? None. We come to Romans 6 to 8, all of a sudden you've got the capability of walking with God. And that's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is his work that makes us alive, that, bring, that justifies us, brings us to new life. It's the forgiveness of sins that puts us in the position to be able for God to be able to do that. And then he gives us his spirit, so now we have the power by which it's meant capability mm -hmm. to walk with God in a way that we couldn't walk before we came to Jesus. That's the yellow brick road. Yellow brick road is the ability to walk with God, enabling you to live in the way he originally designed you to live. And eternal life is not just a life of duration, mm -hmm. it's a life of quality. Mm -hmm. God gives us that allows us to live for eternity 
but with eternity in us so that we are able to live out the way we were designed to live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. So we have here, we see that Christians, we believe things historically, and then we believe things theologically as well. And there's a practical everyday dimension to this that it actually makes a difference. And Gary, could you tell us uh, the story that, that you tell about how the resurrection has really um, impacted your life when you were going through a, a very difficult time um, with your with your wife, um, tell that story to us. Well, my wife, it, it was over pretty quickly, but my wife had been sick for a few months. We had no idea what it was. And when they finally sent us for testing, they'd already sent us for other tests, but when they sent us for the final testing that discovered it, it turned out she had stage four stomach cancer and she died uh, four months later. Uh, that's all, all she lived. But before she got sick, I had done some publishing on the subject of doubt. And in one of those publications, I was reflecting on Job and Job's talking with God in Job 38. And I made this make-believe scenario what my Job 38 would be if I got to ask Job my questions. What would it look like? And I had published that. And three years later, she got sick. And so I thought, oh my, for crying out loud, I can't believe this. Now I have to see, does the advice I give in this earlier document really work when I'm going through the fire? And so we got back from the hospital um, where they told us there's nothing they could do for her, and she was terminal. And the kids were in school. It was the first week in May of 1995. She was upstairs sleeping because she was given a medicine for stomach cancer that made her sleep 17, 18 hours a day. And I put a child monitor up there and went out and sat on the front porch. It was starting to get warm. And I had my Job 38. And I I literally sat there and thought, wow, this is my day in the sun. I, 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 can, I can think like Job 38. And I had this make-believe conversation. Only now, it was the same one I had in three years earlier with the resurrection, but now it was spiced in a way by my wife's obvious dying, and she didn't live too much longer. But as I sat there on the porch, imagining what God would say to me, I would start by saying, Lord, why is, why is Debbie upstairs dying? I mean, she's 43 years old, and she's the mother of our four children, and I thought you called me to ministry, but how can I minister, and how can I teach, and how can I publish if my kids need breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they need their clothes washed? We had four children, and if they have to have their homework done at night, how can I get anything done? And so I said, why her? Why now? Why this? And she's my best friend. And in my Job 38, the way I saw that is that the Lord would have said to me, you know, Gary, I appreciate this. I, I, I appreciate your laying this out, but I've got a question for you. What kind of a world is this? Now, notice that's how Job 38 start, starts, too. Where were you when I created the foundation of the world? And I pictured the version for me would be, what kind of a world is this? And I didn't know what to say, and she's dying, and I didn't want to play theology. And so I said, well, Lord, I don't know. I'll, ta- I'll tell you in, in terms of my own studies. It's a world where your son came to earth, died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and we can have a lot to hope for because of this. And, and he said to me, in my imagination, 
the Lord said, oh, it's a good start. It's a good place to start. Uh, and, you know, I know what you're going through. Well, I'd read a lot of literature and later wrote a book on grief, and, and I knew that's the last thing you say to somebody who's died. I know what you're going through. Even if you did go through what they went through, the problem is they could look at you and say, yeah, but you're over it. I'm not. I'm in the middle of it. So don't talk to me about this. Well, I picture God saying to me, I know what you're going through. And I thought, all right, how so? And he said, well, I watched my son die. And I said, I'd already been told it was terminal, but I hope there was a way out for her. And so I was shocked when he said that. And I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me that as you watched your son die, I'm going to have to watch Debbie die? And I pictured him saying to me, son, you're going to go through some deep water. But someday you will be, as the last card I put away after she passed away, as the last card said, how are you going to feel someday when you're talking about the yellow brick road finally issuing into the Emerald City? The card said, how are you going to feel walking down the streets of heaven hand in hand with your wife. And I'm telling you guys, when I read that card, I thought I was going to die. When I opened that card up, I, I couldn't repeat those words for a year. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to walk down the streets of heaven, hand in hand with your wife. And, I, and so I picture God saying to me in the words of the, that card, I pictured him saying, Gary, you got some deep waters to go through. But one day, you and Debbie will be in the kingdom together with us. And it'll be a glorious time. But I can't explain it all right now. But just keep that truth ever before you. And basically, that was a shortened version of the conversation. Later, I told the story again. That was the, the, the three-year earlier story that I published with her death put into it. And so I interpreted her death as my sending my greatest gift, home to heaven. And it would have been the other way around if it had been me that died. But I set my greatest gift home where she couldn't be touched. In the words of 1 Peter 1, 3 and following there, nobody can take this away from me. Nobody can, she can't be hurt anymore. Nobody can steal this. It's garrisoned in the halls of heaven. Yes, it's horrible, but yes, she's safe. And yes, it's forever. And yes, it's about reunion. And metaphorically, because that you know conversation never took place, but with the Lord, but metaphorically, yeah, that's what the resurrection meant to me. So it's symbolized. It's not great right now, but this is, you know, as philosophers have said th- down through the ages, this is not the best of all possible worlds, mm-hmm. but it's the best way to achieve the best of all possible mm-hmm. worlds. And I knew I was going to have to get on with the achieving part. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for sharing that with us, Gary. You're welcome. So we see that there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, that it's the meaning of that is the vindication um, of who Jesus is and, and the eternal life that he offers us. And this is really the hope, uh, the resurrection truth and hope that we celebrate at Easter time. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thanks, Daryl. My pleasure. Thank you, Gary, for being with us once again. Guys, I enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And we thank you so much for tuning in, for watching and listening to us here on The Table. If you have a topic you'd like us to consider for a future episode, please email us at thetable at dts.edu. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, and I hope you'll join us again on The Table podcast as we discuss issues of God and culture. 
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.